Hi there, and welcome back to Out There, a cryptid podcast. I'm your host, Josh. Each season, I come out with new episodes focused on cryptids that I find super fascinating and weird. And if you still don't know what a cryptid is, it is defined as an animal that has been claimed to exist but never proven to exist. Cryptids don't have to be supernatural or mythical beings, although many of them are. Some cryptids have actually become documented animals. Make sure you go and follow the podcast on Instagram, at OutThereCryptids, and check out the posts I make for each episode and maybe send some suggestions you'd like to hear. Well, 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 it's good to have you all back. Now, if you're a regular listener, you might have heard the difference in the intro for this episode. So, as the podcast has been growing, I have been making plans on how to produce episodes in a timely and efficient manner where I'm still delivering the best versions of the episodes I can. Now, the show will be in seasons, just like your favorite television shows. But this isn't going to be a Netflix-type thing where they are all released at once for binging. No, it is still going to be released every Wednesday of the week. But instead of every single week, it'll be for 8 to 11 weeks, depending on the season. If you take a look on wherever you listen to the podcast, all of the episodes that have been released should all be put into seasons already. So... We are already in season four, which is not so bananas. <laughs> so that is the first bit of fun news. Next up is, remember how I talked about adding another team member to help on the podcast? Well, I am ready to begin the search. I've created a link tree in the Instagram bio. There's a form in there. Um, it's the very first link. Fill it out and we'll go from there. I'm very excited for these changes and hope that by the beginning of 2022, we will have so many more fun things that I'm already starting to plan. But in the meantime, I want to hear from you all. So when you're listening to the episode, snap a pic and put it on your Instagram, either your story or a post, and tag us at OutThereCryptids and use the hashtag OutThereCryptidPodcast. Can't wait to see what you post. Okay, okay, I know. I've been talking for a long time, so let's move on to what you're really here for. Today's cryptid case is one that terrified thousands of people. A night full of panic, wonder, and firearms in Los Angeles, California, during World War II. Today, we are talking about the Battle of Los Angeles. There is no weird club today, just me. Let's dive in. February 24th, 1942, Los Angeles County, California. At 7.18 that night, the Office of Naval Intelligence, or ONI, released a warning that there could be an attack on California. According to reports, witnesses claimed to see many flares and blinking lights, but the warning was lifted at 10.23 p.m., and everybody went to sleep for the night. That is, until around 2.20 a.m., when residents of L.A. County were woken up by the air raid sirens, signaling they were under attack. A blackout was ordered soon after, and the entire city went dark. Then, starting at 2.43 a.m., the L.A. Valley erupted like a volcano. The military stations across the coast began firing at will. It was pure chaos. Citizens running for cover, thinking they were all about to die. The military men firing at unknown targets in the sky. Over 1,400 shells were eventually fired, and five people died that night. 
The shooting continued sporadically throughout the night until around 4.15 a.m. Then, at 7.21 a.m., the blackout was lifted, and the city was not under threat anymore. The newspapers the next day called it the Battle of Los Angeles. I have to say, I have been obsessed with this case ever since I heard about it when I was little. I guess I should tell you why this is a cryptid case, huh? Well, many believe that what was in the sky that night was a UFO, or many UFOs. Now, this episode is going to be structured kind of like how the Montauk monster was. I'm going to outline in more detail what happened that night, and then we'll talk about the different possible theories. So, why don't we do a little history lesson before we learn all of the details? Two months prior, the tragic event of Pearl Harbor shocked America to its core. Pearl Harbor was a base in Honolulu, Hawaii. On December 7th in 1941, Japanese fighter planes surprise attacked the base, destroying 20 Navy ships, 300 airplanes, and killing more than 2,400 people. Navy men and civilians are included in that number. 1,000 were wounded. It was one of the worst days in American history. The next day, on the 8th, the United States entered into World War II. Now, tensions were still high in February when the possible UFO invasion occurred. In Juneau, Alaska, the San Francisco Bay Area and Seattle, Washington, there were other scares similar to this one, but all of them turned out to be just that, scares. But all the while, Japanese submarines were attacking naval and merchant ships in the Pacific right off the coast of California. Fifteen ships, to be exact. Not all of them were sunk. Some were actually able to escape, but fear was only rising in the U.S. Then, on the 23rd of February in 1942, at 7.15 p.m., a Japanese submarine appeared in the waters off the coast of Santa Barbara, California. It opened fire on Elwood Oil Field in Galeta, California. Even though there were only minor damages and no injuries, this incident only made residents of the West Coast and the rest of the country even more terrified that it was only a matter of time until the Japanese would storm their beaches. And then, only a day later, this mysterious thing in the sky would appear. Okay, so now let's go through a little more detailed timeline of these crazy events. This information came from military documents that were declassified in the late 50s. It was called the 4th Anti-Aircraft Command, and it was the only document that contained this crazy night's event. So, right before 1.45 a.m., radar detected a target about 120 miles off the coast. It came east towards Malibu and then turned south. Radars followed it until it was about 3 miles off the coast. That's when it just disappeared. The whole Southern California coast was put on yellow alert, meaning an attack could occur at any moment, and they should be prepared. There were about 250 guns pointing at the sky. Then, like I said, the blackout was ordered at 2.21am, but at 2.30, green alert status 1 was put into effect, meaning that the soldiers were to fire at will. At 2.43, an officer reported seeing an unidentified plane between Seal Beach and Long Beach, which is just south of downtown LA. That is when they began to fire. 
They were called perceived targets because they could not be identified. Then at 328, Battery G of the 70th Coastal Artillery reports 25 to 30 heavy bombers over the Douglas plant. And then at 333, 15 planes were seen over Artesia. Now, the five people that lost their lives were killed not by the military or the UFOs. Two were heart attacks, and three were car crashes, which were all due to the events. This makes this the most deadly UFO sighting on record. But shooting continued until 4.13, when the target seemed to just disappear. In the Smithsonian Channel series, UFOs Declassified, two eyewitnesses to the event talked about their experience. Ray Bingham was only four at the time. He recalls hearing the sirens and his father coming to grab him out of his bed. His whole family went outside. He remembers seeing the searchlights in the sky. He said they were not just random, they were searching for a specific point in the sky. Another witness named Bill Tompkins was 17 years old. He explained how very, very disturbing the night was. People lined up from both sides of the street, and there was a very large vehicle at about 7,000 to 8,000 feet. It just moved in and stopped right above us, he said. There were other vehicles, smaller, that were coming and moving around them and moving above them. We could clearly see the shells being blown up on the bottom of this big vehicle, with no indication of there being any damage to it. This leads us into our first theory, that an extraterrestrial craft, or crafts, were above LA that night. Now, something to keep in mind is that this event predates the Roswell incident in 1947, which was the first time terms like UFO, flying saucers, or flying disks were ever used. It doesn't seem like anyone described this unidentified object as a disk or a saucer, but still, at this time, UFO sightings weren't a part of mainstream culture yet, so it would seem unlikely for people in this city to just jump to that conclusion. However, there were two UFO sightings in the LA area from Project Blue Book that occurred after this incident. We talked about Project Blue Book a little in Mothman episode. It was run by the United States Air Force. They were tasked with investigating reports of unidentified flying objects. It ran from March of 1952 to December of 1969. They ended up investigating 12,618 UFO reports but only 701 reports were classified as unexplained. These two sightings are two of those 701 reports of UFOs. July 30th, 1954. Two test pilots with the U.S. Air Force were flying when they reported seeing something strange in the sky. The report reads, Pencil-thin line, stationary in horizontal plane parallel to Earth, seemed solid metallic, air visual from B-25 on test mission. Objects did not disappear. Navy aircraft passed under the object. Object appeared to be at 10,000 feet. And under the conclusion, it reads, unidentified, 
The second sighting occurred on November 11th and November 12th in 1956 in El Toro, California. The sight was eight hours long. The object was observed visually and on radar. In the Blue Book's report, there are 30 photographs of radar anomalies. Helicopters and jets were sent to investigate, but when they arrived exactly where the strange object was on radar, they found nothing there. This was concluded as overactive imagination, but other beliefs it was an intelligent craft. Although these did happen well after the Battle of LA, they happened in the general vicinity and have similarities to that night we are talking about, like appearing on radar and looking metallic. But that isn't all the evidence we have for this being a UFO. A retired aeronomical engineer named Dr. Robert Wood claims to have classified documents that prove there were aliens in the sky and that the government knew about it. He says that they were delivered to him and he was told to report the truth. The documents were a mix of memos and letters to the president. The reports say that the military was fully aware they were fighting UFOs, and it even goes on to say that some were shot down. Now, one document he has is one we will go over, and it is certified for authenticity, but the other four were not. They were unknown. The unknown documents go on to say that the government recovered two crafts after the air raid, one was found in the San Bernardino Mountains, and the other was recovered by the Navy in the Pacific. The words, not earthly, are visible on the page. The thing is, he only showed copies of these documents, so therefore, they cannot be tested for the authenticity. Since we are talking about documents, on September 27, 1958, the memorandum for the president was declassified. This was written by General George Marshall, who was the Chief of Staff for the U.S. Army. It reads, The following is the information you have from GHQ this morning regarding the air raids over Los Angeles of yesterday morning. From details available at this hour, number one, unidentified airplanes other than American Army or Navy appointment over Los Angeles and were fired on by elements of the 37th Sea Brigade between 3.12 and 4.15 a.m. These units expanded 143 pounds of ammunition. Number two, as many as 15 airplanes may have been involved flying at various speeds from what is officially reported as being very slow to as much as 200 miles per hour and at elevations from 9,000 to 18,000 feet. Number three, no bombs were dropped. Number four, no casualties among our troops. Number five, no planes were shot down. Number six, no American Army or Navy planes were in action. Investigation continuing. It seems reasonable to conclude if unidentified airplanes were involved, they may have been from commercial sources operated by enemy agents for purposes of spreading alarm, disclosing location of military craft positions, and alarming production through blackout. Search conclusions is supported by varying speed of operation and the fact that no bombs were dropped. Okay. 
So the importance of this document lies solely on the fact that it was an unknown aircraft. We hear that there was more than one plane in the sky and that they weren't moving very fast, but at very different heights. Now, there are two theories that could explain there being objects in the sky that night. One theory is that weather balloons were to blame for this whole incident. We all know that weather balloons are usually the first culprit when it comes to UFO incidents. Either way, apparently a routine weather balloon was sent up around 3am during the green status. The commander hears that this was in the air and orders it to be shot down, which is apparently when everyone started shooting, inherently sending his troops into a frenzy. And this leads into Nicholas A. Veronico's theory. He was featured on the UFO's Declassified episode. Veronico is an aviation historian, and he said, I believe it was mass hysteria that set off all that anti-aircraft fire. I think they were shooting at Jupiter. And while the Jupiter theory might be a little too far off, the hysteria part really isn't. Think about it. Not only are the people living in the U.S. terrified of attacks, so are the military men who were the ones holding the guns that night. With that much pressure and anxiety, of course it is possible for a mass hysteria event to occur. The thing is that even if we don't say they are alien ships, the government reported multiple crafts in the sky that night, and they weren't weather balloons because they were called airplanes in the official reports, plus they were objects detected in the radars. But at this time, radar detection was fairly new and sometimes was thrown off by clouds or even flocks of birds, or atmospherical interference. These theories are all definitely plausible, especially since the object on radar disappeared three miles from land, but it still doesn't explain what happened in the skies. Now, there is another theory that does have some merit to it. According to official police reports from the incident, they had contacted the Navy about an aircraft that had crashed at 180th Street in Vermont. The LAPD confirmed these reports, but no evidence of a crash was ever found, and furthermore, the police changed their statements after. The theory is that an American top-secret plane may have been shot down that night, and the military went in to cover up the incident for security reasons. There is a top-secret military base called Edwards Air Force Base that is just on the other side of the mountains from LA. Almost every kind of American aircraft was tested here, including the XP-59, which was top-secret at the beginning of 1942. Okay, so the XP-59 doesn't really look like a flying saucer, but it is definitely metallic and was unknown to the public at the time. But it is highly unlikely that this would be flown over a major city like LA. Now, these are definitely leaning way towards the side of not applicable in this case, but they are still awesome, so we shall talk about them. There were other planes that looked much more like flying saucers. The first one we are talking about is called the Vought V-173. Its first flight was in November of 1942 in Connecticut, which is on the other side of the U.S., 
The plane looks like a regular plane, except that the back is circular. So it's almost like a half disc is flying in the sky. Check out the Instagram post to see what I mean. But it is funny because in Connecticut, locals started reporting UFO sightings when this thing was flying. And I probably would too. This plane could reach speeds of 138 miles per hour and climb to heights of 5,000 feet in just seven minutes. However, it never entered into the fleet of planes that the U.S. used during any wars, and it especially wasn't being flown in L.A. at the time. And if you are ever in Dallas, Texas, you can see this plane in person at the Frontiers of Flight Museum. Now, the next plane, or I should say craft, is literally a flying saucer. It's called the Avro Canada VZ9AV Avrocar. It is about 5 feet tall and 18 feet wide. It's originally from the Canadian government, but they handed the technology over when the project became too expensive in the early 1950s. The whole point of this plane was to develop a supersonic fighter bomber capable of vertical takeoff and landing. But when the U.S. started testing it at the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio, well, they realized that the plane couldn't fly above 3 feet off the ground. And that it was never going to reach supersonic speeds. But, I mean, it does look so cool. Two are actually on display in the US. One is at the National US Air Force Museum at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio, and the other is in the US Army Transportation Museum at Fort Eustis in Virginia. There is one pretty big thing that I haven't talked about yet, and that is the possible photo evidence of there being a UFO in the air that night. So, the morning after the air raid, the LA Times wrote an article explaining everything that happened. It paints a hectic, frenzied scene for people around the world. But it also provided possible photo evidence that something really was terrorizing the city. February 26th, 1942. The headline read, Searchlights and anti-aircraft guns comb sky during alarm. And under it was a giant picture of searchlights all meeting on one specific target in the sky. In UFOs Declassified, former FBI agent and member of the TV show Factor Faked Paranormal Files, Ben Hansen, was able to see the negative of the photo in question. He went to the archives for the LA Times. What he could see was that the negative did show the same picture in the news. It was just heavily retouched, probably for printing purposes. But while he is there, the archivist noticed something odd. He points out that the little notch indicating what kind of film was used for the photo was different from the usual ones that the LA Times used, meaning it was shot with a different film stock. That suggests that it didn't really come from a Times photographer at all. Now, further analysis of the negative does show that it is a real photo. The enhancements came after. In the photo, you can see more density in the center of the lights, and that the beams appear to be hitting off of that object and reflecting into other parts of the sky. But what this doesn't tell us is exactly what was up there. So this discovery really did happen on the show. The archivist was not an actor, and he truly did notice this difference right there. 
The problem is, without the actual original, there really is no way of getting more questions answered. The conclusion that came from the government about that night was less than satisfactory. They said the whole event was caused by jitters, meaning the army was just shooting at empty skies that night out of fear and panic. In an LA Times article from the 50-year anniversary in 1992, writer Jack Smith talks about how embarrassment turned to outrage. The army disagreed with this conclusion, but the Navy didn't. Smith goes on to say, The Secretary of War tried to save face by saying that while there were no enemy aircraft in the air, it was believed that 15 commercial planes flown by enemy agents had crossed the city. But in an army document, it says that numerous weather balloons had been released over the area that night. They carried lights for tracking purposes, and these lighted balloons were mistaken for enemy aircraft. Shell bursts illuminated by searchlights were mistaken by ground crews for enemy aircraft. And the Japanese eventually did come forward to say they had flown no airplanes over Los Angeles on that date. But for many, this was not the truth. And I've got to say, I totally agree. I think in this case, there were more questions brought up with every bit of information thrown at. And to me, it almost... All the evidence points to some kind of unidentified flying object that was truly in the sky that night. Some things that I wanted to talk about about this night were that unfortunately some Japanese people living in California, and maybe not even Japanese people, but Asian people, were rounded up out of suspicion. I felt like that was a very important part of the story to talk about, but I didn't know where to put it in the episode, so I wanted to put it at the end. And on a lighter note, there is an event still held on the anniversary of this air raid every year. It's in California, and you can buy tickets to see it whenever COVID is done. Everybody dresses up in 40s apparel, and there's dancing, music, and the celebration of a different era. So, what do you think? Are UFOs really out there? We are on Instagram, at OutThereCryptids. Make sure to follow us and tell us all of your thoughts on the cryptids we cover and what you'd like to hear next. It would mean a lot to us if you go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. It's a great way for others to find the podcast and enjoy, just like you. One week from today, I will be covering a cryptid that has terrified many people through a game that many of you might have in your house. The Zozo Demon. The Ouija Board Spirit. See you next week. This episode is written and hosted by me, Josh, with logo design by Jason Sykes and theme music from purpleplanet.com.